I'm really glad you're all here this morning. Welcome back to the 9 a.m. hour in person, and thank you to the Gospel and Life leaders who have been leading uh, over Zoom over the past year and a half or so. We're really excited to start transitioning back into in-person and getting things back up and running. I, I know I'm very grateful for all the people, Andrew and Angela and all of them working in kids ministry. There's a lot of changes there. We're now covering the full spectrum of ages now, so it's very exciting to start to see church getting more and more back to normal, and so very excited about that. Um, Tim is handing out some handouts here. Uh, we've got a special guest with us who you already likely have known or met, and we're very grateful to have him back again. And his name is Randy Patton, and he's he was out here for a biblical counseling uh, conference, and you can already see the subject that he's going to be discussing, which I'm sure he will add uh, biblical wisdom to, and so we're very excited to have him here with us, and I, hopefully you will give him a warm welcome with me. So welcome, Randy Patton. Well, uh, thank you, Eric, and good morning, everybody. And um, when uh, I agreed to come and speak, um, uh, which was a great, uh, this is a great privilege for me to be here, I had no idea that it would be such a historic Sunday, (laughs) that we're rolling out the donuts one more time. And uh, (laughs) so I'm claiming responsibility for that. So if you're blessed by the coffee and donuts this morning, you're welcome. And... uh, (laughs) um, I've told Pastor Chris and uh, others that one of the, I just have such a fondness for this church. I just love coming here. And I think uh, I've joked with some people, it's because you have coffee and donuts before the first service, but also just the warmth and the way you listen so attentively to the preaching and teaching of God's word. And uh, I'm just very proud of this church and how God is using it to help so many people. And I recognize a lot of faces. I struggle with names, but I recognize a lot of faces, and it's just a joy for me to be, uh, be back with you. Um, <clears throat> I've chosen to speak this morning on the subject of nuts and bolts of church discipline. And one of the reasons I uh, chose to speak on this is because of the strategic significance that I think this subject has to the ongoing health of the Church of Jesus Christ, uh, particularly in America. So before we get into it, let me uh, lead us in prayer, and then we'll charge ahead, okay? Father, I ask for your help as I seek to teach your word on this uh, very important subject, and I pray that you'd help me to be clear and precise. I pray that those that are listening would find uh, helpfulness, that they maybe would learn some things that they had not thought of previously or had not noticed in the scriptures. And I would pray that as a result of this, that the Clayton Valley Church would be strengthened uh, further in its ministry to this part of your vineyard. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, let me uh, begin with a uh, quotation from Dr. Paul Van Gorder, former Bible teacher at the Radio Bible class. And he wrote uh, and, and said, If unity is to be maintained in the church, it must be sustained in righteousness. The great spiritual dearth in many local assemblies today, and which threatens churches that are not in full spiritual health, is the result of impurity that is tolerated. This has been allowed to creep in because the church has been unwilling to discipline those within its own fellowship. Um, One of the things that uh, I have observed personally is that um, there's a lot of churches that will sometimes advertise that we're Bible-believing, Bible-preaching. In fact, you'll see that on signs out uh, by the road, churches, or certainly on their website. But over the years that I've been in ministry, and especially through the counseling uh, ministry that I've done, where you're dealing with uh, difficult situations, and sometimes you're dealing with very, very difficult situations that are due to just blatant sin. And you find yourself dealing with a sinner committing blatant sin who is hard-hearted and unwilling to listen to the counsel from the scriptures or the counselors that are seeking to minister to him. And there's times when, as a counselor... I find myself, I mean, I need some more white corpuscles 
to help fight this infection of sin. But their church, which advertises being Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, I discover is not Bible-practicing. And uh, when I'm encouraging people to find a church or look for a church home, I would say, you want to find a church that's Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, and Bible-practicing. And oftentimes, the litmus test between those is whether or not the church practices biblical church discipline. And uh, as we begin, let me just say it this way. If you are married, and your spouse, and your members of, of, of this church, or uh, your members of a church, and your spouse starts committing adultery, you want to be in a Bible-practicing church. If your parents, and you have a teenager who professes faith in the Christ in the past, has been baptized as a member of the church, and that teenager becomes addicted or is heading down a path toward addiction, toward sexual sin or um, uh, illegal drugs or something, as parents, you want to be in a church that's not just Bible-believing, Bible-preaching. At that point, you want the help of your You want to be in a church that's Bible-practicing. And uh, so the subject of church discipline in, with many people has a bit of a negative connotation. One of the things that I hope as a result of this study is that going forward, you will think of this in very positive terms. And you'll think about any church that I'm a member of, I want to be a part of a church that practices biblical church discipline in the way the Bible says it ought to be done, which is a loving, compassionate way. Well, let's uh, begin our study by talking about this. I want you to understand that the Bible makes clear that God has given authority to your church. God has given authority to your church. We can see that from a number of passages. For example, think about this passage. Matthew 18, verses 18 to 20, which is one of the classic passages dealing with church discipline. Um, And verses 15 to 17 talk about the steps of church discipline, which we'll touch on in a moment. But verses 18 to 20 say, Truly I say to you that whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst." Now, I would guess that uh, your experience has been like mine, and that is that when you've heard that phrase talked about, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I'm in their midst, you've heard it being talked about in the context of people being encouraged to come together and pray together. Folks, this passage is not about coming together to pray together. This is in the immediate context of talking about church discipline. And what God is saying is, is that when people as the corporate body of Christ make decisions and how they're responding to somebody who's in blatant, unrepentant sin, that when a church does that, heaven's agreeing with that. And that where two or three are gathered together in his name to, to practice biblical church discipline, the scripture says, there I am in their midst. God has given authority to your church. Here's another passage. This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and if you know anything about the church at Corinth, I mean, you remember that that was a church that was just riddled with difficulty, and uh, in fact, none of us would feel complimented if uh, visitors come to our church for a few times, and then as we're talking with them and asking about their impressions of the church and, and so forth, none of us would feel complimented if the people say, you know, every time I come to your church, it just, it just reminds me of the church at Corinth. I mean, that is not a compliment, right? So here's a church that's just riddled with difficulty and challenges. But notice what is said about them in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 3 to 5. Paul says, For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 5, he's talking about a man who is a member of their church who is sleeping with his stepmother. And it was a horrendous sin. Even non-believers in Corinth, for goodness sake, 
thought it was scandalous, and yet the church had not dealt with it. And Paul is strongly admonishing the church to exercise the authority that God has given them. God has given authority to your church. Number two in our outline, God has given the authority and responsibility to discipline to your, into your church. Now, let's talk about what discipline means in the broad sense. Discipline in a broad sense just refers to a proper way of living. Um, <clears throat> you know, uh, uh, back in Indiana, uh, we're kind of known for basketball. And um, when basketball season rolls around and you're watching a game on TV, if one of the commentators says, this is a well-disciplined team, that's a compliment, right? I mean, or if someone says about a child or says to you as parents, your children are, are so well-disciplined, that's a compliment. You know, the word discipline is a, is a, is a, in the broad sense is a, is a good, positive term. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8 that we're to shun old fables fit only for old women. Instead, we're to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. So in the broad sense, it's just an, a proper way of living. And to have a well-disciplined home, to live a well-disciplined life, to have a well-disciplined team that you're coaching, all of those are very positive things. In the narrow sense, discipline is loving confrontation. It's exclusion from fellowship. It is what would be called corrective discipline. In fact, you may want to write that in your notes. It's, in, the, in the more narrow sense, discipline is corrective so, many of you are parents, and you love your children, and the Bible says if you love your children, you will discipline them, okay? Um, and so, um, it, it has both this broad and this narrow definition. And what we're talking about primarily uh, in this session is more of the, the narrow sense of discipline in the church. Now, a question that is uh, proper to ask would be, okay, uh, why is it that if the Bible teaches this and churches advertise or brag about being Bible-believing and Bible-preaching, why is it that many Christians would say, I have never heard a message on church discipline, or they may say, I've been attending church for all my life, and I've never seen biblical church discipline take place. Uh, years ago, I attended a conference where... One of the men that I um, really respected as a theologian was Dr. Charles Ryrie. And uh, you, some of you are familiar with the Ryrie Study Bible, and he taught for many, many years, decades at Dallas Theological Seminary. He was a tremendous uh, communicator, very, very bright, um, bright man, had two PhDs. And, um, uh, in fact, I was told about him by one of his students. Uh, part of the reason I liked him is that I wanted to be like him in the sense he could take significant theological truths and just seem like he could make them so clear and precise. And I mentioned that to somebody who happened to have been a graduate of Dallas Seminary, and they said, well, you know part of the reason for that, don't you? And they said, Dr. Ryrie is a genius. He is so bright. But for many, many years in our church, he's taught the sixth grade boys Sunday school class. Wouldn't you want your son or grandson to be in that, that class, right? <clears throat> this fabulous theologian learning how to take down the truth of the scriptures and to bring it down so sixth graders can get a hold of it. So I heard uh, him speaking at a conference, and he had been asked to address the subject of church discipline. I was a young pastor when I went to this conference. I was very eager to learn from Dr. Ryrie about church discipline because I had already seen the need, the need for it and, and our church to grow in this area. And I was stunned in his introduction. He said, uh, I'm going to teach you what I understand the Bible to say on this. But he says, I'm not going to be able to offer much uh, by way of just personal wisdom and so forth on it because I have never seen it done. He said, I've got some adult daughters who are in churches. They tell me about it, but I have never seen it done. And I thought, wow. Well, how, why is it then that churches that would say they're Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, don't do this? 
Well, here are some common excuses that I have heard. And in one of my previous jobs, I had the privilege of serving kind of as a pastor to pastors, pastor to pastors and a consultant to churches. <clears throat> and issues about discipline would come up. And here are some of the excuses that I would hear. Oftentimes, people said it's not loving. Now, if you think about that, you've got a major, if you adopt that, you've got a major theological problem. Because the, Bible, because the God who is love is the one who's told us to do this. And in Hebrews it says that God loves us enough that he disciplines his children. Proverbs says if you don't discipline your children, you don't really love them. So uh, when someone says, well, it's not loving, uh, I would just say you, you have a ter- ter- uh, terrible understanding of what the Bible teaches on this and the implications of it. Other people will say, I've never seen it work. And, um, you know, that may, be, that may be true. But if we're only going to obey the portions of the Scripture that we have seen work, then we've got a, tremend- we've got a tremendous problem with our approach to studying the Scriptures and following through on it. Uh, a third excuse is that it may scare people away. And as a pastor years ago... I came to view that as a positive. I mean, anybody that would be scared away from our church because we practice biblical, loving church discipline, as a pastor charged with guarding my flock, I don't want you to come. I mean, in a sense, it's almost like it's a protective fence. All right? Other people say, well, it has been abused. And I would have to say that's probably true. But you know what? So have church secretaries. So have pastors. So have youth leaders. I'm not talking about abuse in the legal manner we talk about it today. But, you know, anybody in spiritual leadership has been taken advantage of. I mean, parents are taken advantage of by kids at times. And um, so the practice of church discipline, I think, in some situations and with some churches, the way they go about it, they have abused it. They've not used it properly. But that doesn't mean we quit, we, we quit, have it, quit doing it. Uh, one pastor told me, uh, we use the inactive list instead. And in many of the churches with which I've been associated, the inactive list just becomes a convenient way to bypass doing the sometimes difficult, sticky business of loving people enough to confront and call them to repentance pastor of a larger church told me one time, we don't have time for that. And I thought, really? You don't have time to do what the Bible has clearly said we have a responsibility to do? One pastor told me, I just preach them out. And um, that's not what the Bible calls us to do. It's not what the Bible calls a pastor to do. One pastor said, our church is too big to do that. I think as churches grow, there is a need to you know, reorganize how you care for your flock. Um, I know when I began in pastoral ministry, the, the church I started was what preachers would call rescue work. It was a church that used to run 120 or so, and they'd had difficulties, weren't handled biblically, and they went through a split, and those problems weren't handled biblically, and they ended up going through another split, and the congregation dwindled. And by the time I am called to be the pastor, they'd averaged 38 in Sunday school the two months before I, before I got there. Well, when you've got a congregation of 38, you can pretty well, as a pastor, you know, get around to seeing everybody on a somewhat regular basis. But by God's grace, you know, the church grew. A little bit later, we end up with a church, you know, 175 or 200 or so. Well, we had to do some changes as the congregation grew so that we could care for the people because you can't get around to see everybody and provide proper care for a congregation of 200. So sometimes when people say our church is too big for that, what they're really saying is... Our church organizational structure for caring for our people has not kept pace with our numbers. And then one that you'll hear in our culture is, we may be sued. And, um, you know, that may be true. But in our litigious society, haven't we all heard, in our culture, you can be sued for anything, at any time, by about anybody. And... um, I know of, of at least one situation where a church was sued by a member because their spouse committed adultery. The, doc, the church doctrinal statement said they believe in church discipline, 
but the church didn't do what their doctrinal statement said they would do. And the spouse ended up, and the church didn't confront the man committing adultery. Later, uh, the, the, the marriage failed, and the, the wife, who was the more innocent person the, in this situation, sued the church for not doing what they're supposed to do. So I think that's a possibility too. All right, so those are some common excuses for not uh, fulfilling this responsibility. Uh, point D in our outline. Why, here's some reasons why it is imperative that this responsibility be carried out. And I wanted to say I think there's three strong motivations for each congregation, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, Bible-practicing congregation to carry this out. The first one is to protect God's reputation. I want you to notice how the Bible talks about Christians or followers of God doing things in part to protect God's reputation. Here's one from the Old Testament. And this is not talking about a church, but again, the point is that the Old Testament believers were to conduct themselves in a way that would prompt other people to think good thoughts about God. They were not to act in a way that would cause people to mock God. Luke, uh, Leviticus 22.2 says, Tell Aaron and his sons to be careful with the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so as not to profane my holy name. I am the Lord, God says. Talking to the church, 1 Peter 2.9 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may, pro- that you may proclaim... The excellence of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. And 2 Timothy 2.19 says, Let everyone who names the name of the Lord Jesus Christ abstain from wickedness. Haven't you noticed how any time the moral failure of a well-known preacher hits the news, how that tends to fuel people to think down on Christians and Christianity and the God that we love and serve. I mean, it just makes a mockery. And I think particularly when it happens in a local church and a respected leader uh, is disqualified because of blatant sin for which they're unwilling to repent, um, it's, it's almost like, I think in some ways, we almost lose a generation of kids just, it just gets disillusioning when that, that kind of thing happens. So one reason we practice biblical church discipline is we're trying to protect God's reputation. Here's a second reason why this is important to do it. And that is to protect the sinning believer from greater discipline. To protect the sinning believer from greater discipline. So notice the, this. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, Paul said, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. In other words, in the verses ahead of that, uh, Paul had been encouraging the Corinthians to go after this man who was sleeping with his stepmother and to rebuke him, to call him to repentance, and to do it. And if he didn't repent, Paul said, Turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That, as I studied this topic years ago and in preparing to teach it to my congregation, uh, that really struck with me. And I remember one time uh, we were working with a situation where one of the, the men in our church that I had led to Christ years ago, baptized, and the, he and his wife became faithful servants for a period. And um, I just really cared for this, this couple, spent a lot of time with them. And then after a few years, I noticed they were starting to drift. They weren't coming to services as regularly. And then I heard there's difficulties in the marriage. And then I started doing marriage counseling with them. And after a while, the wife is saying, I think he's, I think he's seeing somebody else besides me. And um, long story short, in one of the sessions, she's charging him with uh, committing adultery. <clears throat> and um, I asked him, if he was, or if he, and it comes out that he's seeing another woman, and he's planning to divorce his wife. And I remember saying to him, Ray, when you go public with your sin, we are going public with discipline the next service. And um, 
At one point, he just said, well, just go ahead and vote and kick me out of the church, which he knew, because he'd been in our church long enough, he knew that's not what we did. We're going to, we just not, it's not a matter of just kicking somebody out of the church. And I said, oh, Ray, you know better than that. We're not going, we're going to vote to dismiss you from membership, and then we're going to turn you over to Satan for the destruction of your flesh. It's not just a matter of you being on the church membership role. And I said, this is serious. So we want to protect the person from further sin. Here's another scripture that talks about it. Uh, Proverbs 13, 15 says, The way of the treacherous is hard. I like the way the King James Version puts it. The way of a transgressor is hard. Or think about this one. Psalm 32, 10 says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked. And... Part of the reason that motivates us to lovingly confront people that are involved in blatant, unrepentant sin is we want to protect them from the future hardship and difficulty that's going to come their way if they continue in this path of sin and rebellion against God. Here's a third motivating reason why every church should give careful attention to that, and that is to protect the purity of the church. 1 Timothy, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 and 7 says, <clears throat> Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Um, here's the way I heard one person summarize that verse, that it has stuck with me. They said, If you do not discipline your bad people, you will lose your good people. In other words, um, I've seen it happen that if you're in a church where people can abandon their marriage vows and commit adultery and people know about it and nothing happens, godly people don't want to be a part of, the, of a church like that. Or here's another way that this person stated it. If you don't discipline your bad people, your good people will be encouraged to sin. Uh, we saw that happen in, a, in our own family. It was very, very sad. Uh, my wife's brother was a pastor and um, had preached and taught the Word of God faithfully for a period of time, but then he hit a period of difficulty in his own marriage, and rather than getting the kind of help he should have <clears throat> and dealt with that, um, he developed an illicit relationship with a woman in the church, and long story short, he ended up being dismissed from the, the pastorate and divorced his wife, married this other woman. But even though his church was not a large church, the ripple effect that was that not just his divorce, but there were two or three other divorces that followed that. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. That's why we've got to, to address it and deal with it to protect the purity of the church. All right, let's move on. Number three in our outline, what are the matters that require discipline? And what I'd encourage you to do is put a big star beside this paragraph in your notes. And it says, note, a person is not publicly disciplined for the following sins, but for a refusal to repent of the following sins and bring forth the fruit of repentance. So that's a very important distinction. A person is not disciplined for a particular sin. They're disciplined for a failure to repent of a particular sin. That's uh, blatant. So here's what, as I've studied the scripture, here's what I understand to be the matters that are of such significance that if a person's involved in these and they will not repent, they require discipline. And one passage that gives us um, uh, six of these is 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11. And Paul wrote and said, But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So, from that one passage, here's what we see. He talks about sexual immorality... He talks about greedy covetousness. He mentions idolatry. 
He mentioned slander, uh, which oftentimes would lead to divisiveness in the church, uh, drunkenness, and thievery. And he says, with those person, and you notice he says to anybody who's a so-called brother. In other words, somebody who's living in blatant sin in any of these areas should lead you to question the reality of the person's conversion. He's a so-called brother. But we don't associate with that person. We put them away from the fellowship. We don't even uh, eat with that person. So... um, We're talking about what sins are so grievous that if they're not repented of, would require discipline. From 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11, we saw 6. Now, here's some other passages that deal with that. Here's one that uh, may surprise you. The Bible talks about laziness, unrepentant laziness, being a grounds for church discipline. Think about this passage. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6 says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you have received from us. The word translated unruly uh, comes from a Greek word that was like a military term, and it referred to uh, soldiers that are marching, and somebody's out of step, the person that was out of step, that, was, that Greek word was used to apply to them. So in this context, when it's talking about unruly, it's referring to a Christian who's out of step with the way a, a, a Christian should live. We're to keep uh, aloof from that person. Then notice these verses. We jump down to verse 10. Second Thessalonians 3, verses 10 to 12 says, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order... If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. Then a little bit later, the scripture says this, And if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter... Take special note of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. And yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Um, When I was serving as a a pastor, we had a a man who uh, became a member of our church, professed faith in Christ, and was baptized, became a member of our church. And for a name, I'll call him John. And... um, his wife wouldn't come to church with him. And, you know, that's, that was just a little unusual because I was accustomed to seeing women come without their husband, but I wasn't accustomed to seeing very men come without their wife. And um, I visited in their home, and she was just cold-hearted. I mean, she kept me like this uh, when I visited in her home. And their kids uh, didn't come very often. And so um, later I heard that there was difficulty in his marriage, and I tried to do some things to help him. And uh, then I heard that he was, um, had lost his job for some reason. It just didn't seem to quite make sense. And um, one day I'm just thinking about this, and then I heard he was living in his car, and I thought, that is strange. This guy's got a master's degree, and there's places around our town got signs in the window that they're hiring and so uh, I called his wife and I said hey I'm concerned about what's going on with John and uh, I'd like to hear from you what's going on and she says well our marriage is a disaster and she says uh, I'm going to divorce him I just have had it with him and um, I offered to do counseling she said I'm not interested in that and um, and she said uh, I mentioned he lost his job and she says yes he's lost his job because of irresponsibility on his part, and she says, I think he wants to be unemployed because he is so angry and bitter toward me, he doesn't want to pay any alimony. And if he's broke, they can't make him pay anything. And she said, he is so angry and bitter. So uh, I confronted John on this, and I talked with him from this very passage and said, John, look, you've got to get a job. And in my counseling experience, I, I've one homework assignment that I've given people that are unemployed is this. 
If you don't have a job and you need a job, your job is to look for a job. So tomorrow morning you get up, pack a lunch, you head out and you go to the mall if you want to go there and just go store to store, fill out application after application, or you can do things online, eat your lunch, and you just keep going. And I said, you keep going until you find a job. Anybody who's taken that advice has got a job in two days. All right? Probably nowadays, it wouldn't even take that long. And uh, recently, somebody told me, here's the ABCs of finding a job. A, any job. Get a job. B, get a better job. I mean, nobody's going to criticize you if you improve yourself. Better salary, better working conditions, so forth. And ultimately, C, get a career job. One that you'll be in for a long time and use your abilities. A, B, C, any job. And I told him, you just need to get any job. He refused to do that. And our church ended up dismissing him from membership on the basis of these scriptures. Because, and it turned out, his wife's analysis was accurate. He was angry and bitter at her, and he was going to do everything he could to make life hard at her. When our deacons, uh, who were involved in all of this, um, we were working through it, one of the deacons, I thought, wisely suggested, said, you know, we ought to do something for that dear wife. And uh, so uh, we approved a chunk of money, and we had one of the, a couple of the deacons' wives went out to the grocery store. We bought bags and bags of groceries and took them to the house and gave them to, to her. And it was interesting. She and the kids started attending our services after we dismissed her husband. And um, I never thought I'd have to discipline somebody for laziness. But uh, that's what it was in his circumstance. Here's another one. Uh, false doctrine. Romans sixteen seventeen says... Keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. In the church, if somebody starts teaching errant doctrine or doctrine that differs significantly with your church's stated doctrinal stance, it will create division in the church. And this is one that I had to grapple with. Uh, we had one of the men who happened to be a deacon in our church um, had a daughter who went off to a Christian college and the man later found out that uh, there was a Filipino man that was paying a fellow student paying attention to his daughter and she was kind of interested in him and when he found out about that he came to me and knew that I had pointed his daughter toward that particular school and he wanted me to contact his daughter and tell her that the Bible does not that it's the Bible teaches that it's wrong for interracial dating and interracial marriage. And I said, Bob, the Bible doesn't say that. That's not true. And he and I went back and forth on that. We had multiple conversations on that. And I said, I'm not gonna not I'm not gonna call Jenny, I'm not gonna write her about that. That is not what the Bible says. And um so we differed strongly, and I finally up saying to him, I said, listen, Bob, this is errant doctrine that you believe. You cannot talk about that around here, and you cannot teach it anywhere. And later, I found out they had a fellowship meeting at their church for, excuse me, at their home for some people in their Sunday school class and everything. And in that context, he brought this up, and he starts promoting this view uh, which our, our deacons and I clearly told him this was not. And we ended up uh, removing him as a deacon and dismissing him from the church because he promoted this doctrine, which became divisive. And um, you've got to do that. I mean, if a person's promoting wrong doctrine, it cannot be tolerated in the congregation because of, of uh, it's a false doctrine. And that oftentimes leads to divisiveness, which is the next one in our outline. Notice what uh, Titus 3.10 says. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning. And oftentimes in our churches, factions are formed around false doctrine, false teaching, things that are believed. 
I don't know what it's been like uh, for you all, but uh, back in my home in Indiana, uh, and some friends in other states that I've talked to, one of the things that uh, has happened as a result of COVID and the related issues that have come up is that some churches have really, really struggled with internal strife because some people have tried to elevate their personal preferences on things like masks, vaccines, how many people should be in the service, what our attitude toward the government, edicts, and so forth. Um, They have made preferences points of doctrine or trying to treat them that way, and it's created tremendous division in a lot of churches. Trust it's not been that way here. Okay, let's move on. Number four in our outline, how do you prepare for uh, church discipline? And let me talk about, first of all, the person who's going to be doing the, the restoring or seeking to restore. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, which is one of the key passages on church discipline, says each one is to look to yourself lest you too be tempted. So if you're going to be one of the ones going to confront somebody about sin and call them to repentance, the scripture's admonition is, okay, take the log out of your own eye first. I mean, do some careful self-examination before you go and confront somebody about, uh, about their sin. For the church, the scripture talks about bearing one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. In fact, uh, if you would, grab your Bible and let me show you Galatians 6, 2, but then I want you to see Galatians 6, 5. Okay, Galatians 6, 2 says, Bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. Um, the word translated burden there was a particular word that would use to a, uh, refer to a load that's too heavy for one person to carry. I mean, it's just, it, 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 it's a, a burden that just, you, you just, one person can't carry it. And with those situations, we're to come alongside, uh, come alongside and help. I think like a practical application of that is I think of these uh, devastating fires that are taking place in your state and some of the surrounding areas. I mean, some of those people that have had their homes just go up in flames, <laughs> they got a burden. I mean, they need some people who need to come alongside to look, we'll help you with clothing and vehicles and whatever it's going to take to put your life together when most of what you've owned has just gone up in smoke. And that's where churches can rally and can be very helpful to people. Jump down to verse 5, though. It says, each one shall bear his own load. That's a different word there. And the word load is basically referring to what we would call your individual personal responsibilities in life. So each of us has a responsibility to, to care for ourselves but there are occasions in life when we may face circumstances or situations where we're just overwhelmed with the load. That's where others help us. What churches have to be careful about is that we do not make it easy for a person to not carry their own load. We want to be, we want to be sensitive. We want to help people when they have a burden, but we don't want to aid and abet irresponsibility. I'll, t- I'll tell you how I face that. Uh, the church I served had a four-lane highway out in front. A mile and a half to the west was the major interstate that went through town, or went through our area. And uh, half a mile to the east was another four-lane highway that intersected with the one we were on. So we had thousands and thousands of people going by. And one of the things um, that happened as a result of that was... Uh, we would somewhat regularly get people coming by who had a very sad story about the car breaking down. They're trying to get from Kentucky to visit their in-law, who, mother-in-law who's dying of cancer in Detroit and they need money or some other sad, sad story. And it's just amazing how many of them happened to be Christians who were Baptist and were sure that a good Baptist brother would help them in their hour of need. And uh, there were so many times uh, when I would hear those things, and I'm thinking, 
really? But I couldn't discern, and the church had made it possible. I had access to some cash. And there were times I give people, you know, 20 bucks or 30 or something, depending on the story and how soft I felt that day. And, uh, and I think, you know, sometimes they drive away. I think they're probably running right down to the speedway and I'm a mile away and they're buying cigarettes instead of gas or something or beer or whatever. And that, I just l- wrestled with that. But one time I was studying one of the passages that we're, I'm going to talk about upstairs in the, the preaching service about our responsibilities to work. And I'd been studying this passage about carrying each person's load. And one day, I'm studying, and the secretary buzzes me and says, Randy, there's a guy out here you need to talk to. So I go out. It's another guy with another sob story about how hard his difficulties are, and he needs some money and so forth. And I told him, well, our church has a policy. We don't give money. I just started it. And uh, I said, but what we do is we're willing to hire people to work for us. And I said, and we'll pay you well over minimum wage. And back then, this was decades ago, minimum wage is like $6 back in Indiana. And I said, we're paying $10. He said, how much are you paying? I said, we're paying $10 an hour right now. And he said, okay, what do you want done? And our church had, for many years, had had a gravel parking lot. But we recently had had it paved. And with the gravel parking lot, we had had railroad ties that kind of went around the perimeter to kind of keep the gravel in place, you know. And the contractors, when they got done, they just stacked the railroad ties over there off the side. And I said, you see that stack of railroad ties? We want those moved over here behind this shed and stacked neatly. And uh, the guy said, you know, I could do that. But he said, uh, I'm supposed to be downtown to meet somebody in about 45 minutes. I'll come back this afternoon. I said, okay, you come back this afternoon. We'll pay you $10 an hour to move those railroad ties for us. Never showed up. And when that happened, I thought... I'm on to something. <laughs> so that became my speech from then on. We don't give away money, but we do hire people to work for us. And uh, one time, a few months later, a uh, guy shows up, gives me another sob story, and I give him the same routine. We don't give money, but we do hire people. And he said, what do you want done? And I talked to him about the railroad ties. He said, okay, I'll move them. And it was just starting to sprinkle. And he goes over and starts grabbing the ties and starts carrying them over there and moving them. And I watched him move, uh, you know, three or four or five railroad ties in the rain. And I thought, this guy's legit. You know, if he's willing to move railroad ties in the rain, he needs help. So uh, while I saw him moving uh, a couple, I went in and called my wife and said, hey, set out an extra plate tonight. I'm bringing a guy home for supper. And... Uh, it ought to have been the wisest thing to do, but that's what I did. And so I took him home, and after dinner, uh, we fed him. And then I took him to the downtown mission, and we made a contribution to the mission because I thought if a guy's willing to work in the rain, his need is legitimate. You see? So that's the difference between you, you want to help people where the need is legitimate, but on the other hand, you don't want to aid and encourage your responsibility when people could work, but they won't work, but they got their hand out. And uh, I found that to be helpful. All right, let's move on. Number five in our outline. What is God's goal and the procedure for church discipline? God's goal and procedure. Well, here's the goal. The goal is to restore to usefulness in the body of Christ. That, that is taught so clearly in Galatians 6.1. The scripture says, Brethren, even if a man is caught in any trespass, or overtaken in a trespass is the way some versions put it. You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourselves, lest you too be tempted. The, the word that's translated restore is used in other pieces of literature to talk about setting a broken bone. So let's think about, you know, if, if I were to fall and break my, uh, break my arm, well, for most practical purposes, my arm has become useless to me. Okay? But if it is set and given time to heal, the arm that once was useful and productive but became almost totally useless can be restored back to a position of usefulness and fruitfulness. That's what it means. The purpose of church discipline is to take somebody who was a follower of Christ and who at one point was fruitful 
and productive in following Christ and in ministry, but because they were overtaken in a fault, overtaken in sin, they, become, they became unproductive and in, in in, uh, lacking in fruitfulness as a, follow, as a follower of Christ. The purpose is to call that person to repentance, to help them make the needed changes so that they could be fruitful in the future again. That is the goal. All right, if that's the goal, how do you accomplish it? Well, <clears throat> here are the steps that the scripture outlines. Matthew 18, verse 15 says, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. That's part of the goal. So how do we do that? Step number one is to address the issues privately. So the scripture says, and if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. Now, depending on what translation of the Bible you're using, um, there's a number of original manuscripts that says if he sins against you. Uh, I'm using the New American Standard. It doesn't say that in the text, but there is a footnote in the margin that says a lot of manuscripts say sins against you. So whichever way, but it means it's something where you have personal knowledge of sin. It may be that the person actually sinned against you, or it may be that somebody that you know where, uh, for example, uh, maybe a person that you know that's the word has come to you that uh, a member of the church is committing adultery or that they're overtaken in drunkenness or something. But the knowledge comes to you. The first thing you do is you go and reprove him. And the word reprove means that basically you talk to the person in what I would call you have a straight up conversation. And when you reprove somebody, you don't have to raise your voice. Uh, you can be kind, polite. But to reprove somebody means that you have a straight-up conversation with them so that when you walk away, they know they've been talked to about that sin. All right? I mean, a lot of you are, are parents. You know what it is. You can have a straight-up conversation with your child. and You don't have to raise your voice. But when that conversation's over, that child knows they've been reproved. Am I making sense? It's what I call a straight-up conversation. Doesn't have to be long, but it's straight up. And so we reprove the person. The goal is that they're going to listen and they would repent. If they don't do that, then that's to be followed by loving confrontation by two or three. It says, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And I would encourage you, if uh, you're the first person going to confront somebody and they resist you and tell you to forget it and get off your spiritual high horse. Who made you the Holy Spirit's helper? And, you know, they can say all kinds of things that are, uh, can be hurtful, but they rebuff you. When you choose to take a, a couple other people with you, try to pick people that you think will be influential in the life of the person that you're talking to. Or the way I like to put it is take people that you think will carry freight with that person and have an impact. And then, um, and the Bible doesn't say you only talk to the person once. The Bible doesn't say you only take two, two or three of you go once. I mean, you may do it multiple times depending on the circumstances. But ultimately, if the person doesn't repent, you're going to need to tell it to the church. And you're going to tell it to the church and call for prayer and uh, confrontation. The way we did it is at our congregation... Um, we would explain the situation to our congregation, and we would ask them to vote that, like I'll use the guy I referred to earlier, that Ray will be dismissed from our church 10 days from today unless he repents of the sin of, of adultery. And then our congregation has urged any of you that know him, many of you do, get to him right away, call him to repent, identify the sin, ask him to repent, and uh, turn back to faithfulness to his wife. Then the person is removed from membership if there's not repentance. Matthew 18, 17 says, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax gatherer. We found it wise and prudent in our congregation that when the congregation voted, that we would say he'll be dismissed 10 days from now unless he repents. And we would usually say, unless he repents in a fashion satisfactory to the pastor and deacons. I mean, somebody's got to make the decision on, did he repent? And we did not want to have another meeting to vote on that because you can't get all the same people together that heard the, the charges and so forth. 
And that seemed to, to work well for us. Now, <clears throat> let's uh, move to number six in our outline. How do you treat an excluded brother? And let's talk about how do you treat a person while he's excluded, and then how do you retreat the person when he's restored to, to fellowship? While he's excluded, as let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax gatherer. That basically means that you're going to treat him as a non-believer. Well, with non-believers, uh, we should be polite, we should be kind, um, you know, courteous, so forth. So with the people that, um, you know, that where I was a pastor, we disciplined them. If, if I saw them, I was kind, polite, friendly. But notice the scripture says, do not associate with any so-called brother if he should be uh, unrepentant. What, what you want to see is that church discipline changes relationships. Or think about this one. 2 Thess 3.15 says, um, And yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Uh, one passage that sometimes people ask about says, Don't even eat with such a person. Well, let me tell you how this worked out or how I sought to apply these verses with the, the man, I think I called him Bob, that was teaching this errant doctrine on interracial dating and marriage. Uh, a few weeks after he had been dismissed from the church, his wife and kids are still coming to the church, and they, they were supportive. And the hard-heartedness that we had experienced in dealing with him, his wife testifies, it's worse at home. So uh, the family kept coming. And he called me and wanted to have lunch. And I said, okay, because I used to meet with him at least once a month for breakfast or lunch. And um, he wanted to get together again for a meal. And I said, uh, okay, uh, what do you want to talk about? And he said, well, I want to talk about that, the way you all handled me and in, in, in the, the church discipline. And I said, uh, well, we don't have anything to talk about on that. That's a settled issue. And he said, well, you know, I, I, I miss talking with you and like to have some fellowship and everything. And I said, Bob? Things are different. I will meet with you if we're going to talk about you repenting. If you don't want to talk about you repenting, uh, I don't have anything to talk with you about right now. Because things are different. So, but if you want to repent, I'm glad to meet with you. We'll be able to do that quickly. All right, when the person is restored, it's interesting with this man that was talked about in 1 Corinthians 5 that was sleeping with his uh, stepmother um, they confronted him he did repent and then 2 Corinthians 2 talks about this in verses 6 to 11 I've just picked out some of the key phrases Paul told the church to forgive and comfort him uh, Paul told the church to reaffirm your love to him um, one of the things um, I've thought about if I went back into the local church pastorate, one of the things that I would do uh, differently, a bit differently than we did last time, is we would have bigger celebrations when somebody who had been disciplined, repented, and came back to the church. And we would uh, have what I call bigger parties uh, for that happening. Okay, let's uh, finish up with this. What are the blessings for practicing biblical church discipline? Well, there's some blessings for the offender that are talked about in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 6 and 7. The scripture says, Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. That is, they are brought to repentance, then they're restored to fellowship and usefulness. That's the benefit of the offender. What's the benefit for the church? Well, look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 7 in your Bible. 2 Corinthians 7. And uh, verses uh, 7, uh, 7 to, 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 to 12, we'll focus on. Uh, 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what yearning, what avenging of wrong. And everything 
You demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So although I wrote to you, if I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on our behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. And then he says in the next verse, for this reason we have been comforted. So what were the benefits for the church? It produced earnestness, significance in their an earnestness in their faith. It produced a vindication that what the church did was right and proper. It helps promote an indignation towards sin. And it promotes a fear of sin. It promotes, it promotes a longing for righteousness and a zeal for God. And an avenging of wrong. Um, the wonderful benefits that comes when a practices biblical church uh, discipline. Well, let me finish by making just a couple of recommendations. If you'd like to do some further study on this, here's uh, some books I'd recommend. If you're going to read just one, I'd probably get the book on the left, uh, The Handbook of Church Discipline by Jay Adams. It's not a particularly thick book, but it's well-written, very clear, very precise. The one on the right's a, a bigger book and a more recent book. It's by Jonathan Lehman, who works with Mark Dever and the Nine Marks Ministry. It's called The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love. And then uh, also the book The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy is a well-known book. And if I went back into the local church pastorate, that'd probably be one of the first books I would use in training some of my leaders. And then there's also a book called Biblical Church Discipline by Daniel Ray, which is also very, very helpful. Thank you for your careful attention. You've listened well. Trust it'll be a strength and a help to you. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you, Randy. And uh, we are at that magical time where we have another service to go to. So a reminder to the parents to pick up their kids and uh, say thank you to the kids ministry workers. We're going to be meeting upstairs in 15 minutes for the morning service to continue on in worship. And so we're looking forward to seeing you there in just a few minutes.